What I have learned over time is that scripture can stand up to some pretty tough scrutiny, but you have to be willing to uh, you have to be willing to test it. Welcome to the City Square Podcast, where we talk with everyday people about faith and work. My name is John, and my guest this episode is Carrie Baldwin. She's a single homeschooling she's a single homeschooling mother of three, entrepreneur, independent researcher, published author, and podcaster. She is the host of the Derek Faith Podcast and the co-host of the Informed Libertarians Podcast. And you can find a lot of her writings on her website at middleweekly.com. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. How are you? Doing fantastic. Um, thanks again for uh, joining me today. I'm really excited about this and um, I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah, thanks for asking me. I'm glad to be here. And so um, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment, um, would you mind uh, sharing with us your story and your, your testimony? Well, um, I grew up in the Lutheran Church, uh, the LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So baptized as a baby, which means I believe I became a Christian when I was a baby. Um, <laughs> Baptists Baptists like to, uh, you know, get their, ruffled, their feathers ruffled by that, but um <laughs> Yeah, I was I was baptized and confirmed in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, and actually I ended up marrying into a uh, sort of Baptist uh, belief and spent some time at a non-denominational sponsored by the Southern Baptist Convention Church, which was much more al- <laughs> <laughs> much more aligned with uh, guys like John MacArthur and John Piper and. And things and things like that. Even Doug Wilson before before he really became big. So I was in those circles for for a while uh, in my young adulthood uh, when I was married. And um, I also spent some time in the United States Air Force as a medical lab tech. So I do have a small little bit of medical background. Um, that was a very short time. I got out early when I was pregnant with my my first son. The U.S. military, at least at the time, gave pregnant women the option to get out early with an honorable discharge. And so uh, initially I had planned on staying in and being a military mom. And somewhere along the line, I was probably about six months pregnant when I butted heads with the master sergeant. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I thought, oh... I signed up for this, but Mama Bear has a little bit of a problem with following orders. So um, <laughs> I ended up getting out when I was when I was eight months pregnant, just shy of three years. So um, at any rate, I've been a stay-at-home mom ever since. Uh, went through a pretty rough divorce in 2016, and uh, it was actually in about 2012 that I wound up at a Reformed church. Uh, it was an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Uh, prior to that, I had been learning quite a bit from uh, R.C. Sproul on Ligonier. And uh, so at any rate, I was I was sort of primed for the Reformed faith by the time I found an OPC congregation. And um, at any rate, so I joined an, an, an OPC church uh, in 2014 with my family and then went through a terrible divorce in 2016. Um, 
ended up experiencing some spiritual abuse uh, within the OPC, within that, that, con- that congregation. And now I'm back at an LCMS church, although I'm not a communicant member. I'm their resident Calvinist. Um, but <laughs> they, treat, they, they treat me quite well. I love that church. Um, and uh, the, the pastor and I have some wonderful dialogues, conversations, and uh, yeah, learning, learning the common ground between the Lutheran faith and the Reformed faith is, has been wonderful. Um, but that's sort of, that's sort of my story. I don't have a testimony in the evangelical sense of, hey, this is when I had my come to Jesus moment. I've always felt right. like I was, uh, uh, a child of God. I knew that God was my father from before I could remember. In fact, I distinctly remember a conversation that I had with uh, a great aunt of mine who was a Catholic nun. And she asked me if I knew who God was. And uh, I was very, very young, maybe five or six years old. And my response to her was, well, God is my father. Um, so very childlike faith. Uh, but that's that's how it's been for my my whole life. Okay, that's awesome. I know because I mean most of my most of my background is within I guess the evangelical SBC culture. Um, we planted a one of those non denominational SBC churches about seven years ago, <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of why I, I laughed when he said that because like it's I get it, um, mm-hmm. and it's it it deserves all the the fun poked at it and like. Even when I was doing it, I would make fun of it. And yeah. so um, that's just that's what it is. <laughs> um, yeah, but well, like, I know that. But. Well, I was just going to say that that congregation um, ended up uh, becoming defunct. They, uh, the pastor there, that was really, really a situation where people were following the, the, the person rather than you know, what was being taught there because he eventually left. And when he left, the the whole thing fell apart. So at any rate, uh, that what's it called cult of personality that was, that was definitely there. So I was happy to get into a reformed church. I really love the reformed faith. I love my Lutheran brothers and sisters and we like to take jabs at one another every now and then, but. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that, and sometime maybe in the near future, we will see a shift within where we finally learn that the cult of personality, celebrity pastor, and all that kind of stuff is not a good idea. I would like to think so. Um, you know, it's very easy for us to go on social media and identify those celebrity pastors with whom we're now disillusioned, right? Um, but in that process are new figures who are cropping up or, you know, becoming, uh, well-known, have a celebrity around them, um, because of their criticism of those celebrity pastors. So I, I tend to look at it, you know, most of these social phenomenons as existing on a pendulum, you know, you get this pendulum swings back and forth. And so as much as I would like to say, hey, I think we've finally, you know, we're we're waking up to this cult of personality problem. I don't think that that's 
quite true. I think you're always going to have those personalities that are just something that people are attracted to for, for one reason or another. That's fair. I mean, like, cause we, we've had them throughout history, mm-hmm. but it just, and maybe it's just because of the way culture shifted and the way technology has kind of taken over a lot of things, but it seems like we've always had a couple throughout every generation. Right. Um, like there's Charles Spurgeon, there's Billy Graham. And even before Spurgeon, we have like, some of them, the Puritans and the Bells of Reformation and that kind of thing. Right. Um, but I guess it just, maybe it's just because of technology, maybe it seems different or because of technology, everybody has a platform. Everybody has a following and right. it's a little bit easier to cultivate that for yourself. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, in some sense, well, first of all, I would say that that cult of personality was sort of hinted at in scripture where, uh, and I'm forgetting the reference, but the, the the passage goes something like, you know, you say one says that you're of Paul and the other of Apollos or something to that effect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to some degree, I think that that exists because there are certain people, personalities who convey an idea in a way that we understand or that resonates with us. Uh, um I certainly think that that was true of R.C. Sproul, um, although he wasn't, as far as I could tell, uh, he wasn't toxic in his behavior like somebody like Driscoll was. Um, But, you know, I gravitated towards R.C. Sproul because he had um, a way of talking about things in a philosophical sense that resonated with me, right? So I think that that's natural. Uh, that comes naturally to human beings. Uh, the problem is when you make that person an idol, right? And that's that's what that right. cult of personality is, is, is a form of idolatry. Like, I mean, I think when Paul says, follow me as, as I follow Christ, that was, a, that's a big, that was a big thing. Yeah. And I think one of the, the temptations I think a lot of pastors have, especially pastors who naturally are able to develop likeness mm-hmm. because of the personality. There's that temptation to, to not go that go further and say, as I follow Christ. Right. And that's a, I think that's, that's a, that's a wrestle. And like, I know cause, um, I came into the faith in, in college and, um, in 2005 and Mark Driscoll is a big deal for me as a, as a young college guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the first, uh, he had one of the first churches that was willing to acknowledge the internet existed. And <laughs> <Yeah>. so like, <laughs> that's true. Um, and so like, I would spend a lot of my free time on the internet, just watching sermon clips and stuff from him. And then like his fall. And then like the two inch was another one that was a, a big deal for me. And so like, I already had like, kind of like the uh, trust issues. And I was always really skeptical. I think that's one of the reasons why libertarianism was an easy thing for me to like fall into. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so like when those two guys that I had followed their platforms, both like fell epically and hard, hard, I was like, I think I'm kind of, I think I'm going to even intentionally like just pull away from mm-hmm. a lot of that, that, that culture and maybe just, because I already believed in the importance of the, the local church and the local body. I was already like wanting to go into church planning. 
And so that was like, yeah, I'm done with buying all their books. I'm done with like always trying to go to, to all the conferences, following all their tweets, following all their blog posts and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, as like, I'm going to like even emphasize where I'm at locally even, even more. Yeah. Because this whole thing, this, this pastor and celebrity shouldn't go together. Um, I already knew that, but it was, it was cool to be connected to people that I probably shouldn't be connected to. It was fun. Yeah. And, um, but like, I think when there's something, there's something I said about the, the church in, in America when Joe Rogan understands that, but that SBC and all these other denominations are still going to like to try to platform these people mm. and um, try to like make money off of them and grow their denominations and that kind of thing. And like when, when this guy seems to get it, but, but our people are still like, no, no, let's just keep trying to say over and over again. Yeah. There's something that's just not right there. Yeah. It's well, and it's, it's interesting because what I've observed with the SBC is directly tied to the complementarian egalitarian debate. And the unfortunate part, I think, about that whole thing has more to do with the fact that uh, Baptists, by definition, have uh, eschewed any sort of doctrine of ordination, right? They've, they've said, we're not, you know, that's what made them Baptist was we don't need some governing body saying, yes, you're, we agree that you're called to be a pastor. And so by doing that, they made man the authority. Um, and now they're, <clears throat> I think they're reaping the con consequences. It's rather long-term, um, given how long the SBC has been around, but this is what happens when you say that man is, is the authority over, you know, over themselves in, in that regard, and you completely issue what, what scripture has to say about that. And now they're forced into a corner where they have to either acknowledge that they're uh, patriarchalist and that they have some, some practices and policies that may be inherently misogynistic, or say, yeah, the egalitarians have something right and open the door to something that is also unbiblical, which would be women's ordination, rather than simply saying, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe we should adopt this whole idea of, of a doctrine of ordination and have that govern, you know, how we, how we practice uh, preaching in the church. You had uh, shared something, I think, on Facebook recently. I think it was when the the Saddleback Church thing was a hot topic for mm -hmm. a couple of days. And I thought it was, you made a really good point about how there's something wrong with an SBC when an SBC will be quick to uh, remove a church because, like, it's a convention, not a denomination. Right. And, like, that's true, but anyways, that's never mind. I'm not going to go on a tangent. Um, but, like, they were quick to disassociate Saddleback because of the adoring, or, Ordain, ordaining women pastors within the church, mm -hmm. but they turned a blind eye to all the abuse that had happened at a lot of uh, the local churches. Right. And I thought that was a really good point uh, because that really shows that like there's something within the, there's a huge, there's something going on in the SBC that needs to be addressed. Right. And um, if that means letting a lot of people go and replacing them with 
new people or realizing that the way that we've structured the, this convention is broken and we need to address some stuff. Um, I don't know what it is, but I mean, when you're, when you're willing to turn the, the blind eye to so many abuse cases, yeah. including sexual abuse, that's unacceptable by any means whatsoever. But we will flex our muscles and go and, and remove Saddleback because they uh, uh, have women pastors now. That was really strange and it was really inconsistent. Yeah, well, it's inconsistent if you understand that there are rules that God has established for um, for governing church office, right? And the problem is, is if you if you look at the qualifications for elders, the qualification that that we typically point to as being the one that says only men can can be pastors, isn't a qualification that says you must be biologically male, right? It doesn't say that. It says you must be the husband of one wife. And that, um, the, the implication, right, is that this is reserved only for men, uh, because only husbands can be, or only men can be husbands. And, uh, but it doesn't say you just have to be a man. It says you have to be the husband of one wife. Now I had a, I had another post about that, another Facebook post about that. And I also mention it in a podcast episode that I did about the Billy Graham rule, uh, whether the Billy Graham rule itself is quote unquote above reproach. And, uh, that was, I did that during the whole Matt Chandler thing. Um, but the reality of that qualification is not, uh, primarily that you're male, although that's part of it. Uh, it's primarily that you know how to treat women. <laughs> and right. here you have the SBC, um, you know, uh, disaffiliating from Saddleback because they decided to have women pastors. Um, and I use the air quotes, not because I don't think women can't have, you know, leadership qualities or anything like that, but because they don't have a doctrine of ordination. <laughs> so I, you know, how can you call them a pastor anyways? But uh, they disaffiliate on those grounds, but they're not willing to disaffiliate on the grounds that you are mistreating women uh, or, you know, children for that matter, because that's part of it. Right. Um, so, you know, there's a, a huge, huge blind spot when it comes to those qualifications for, for ordination. If you're going to uphold them, uphold them. But nothing there says, well, you just have to be a man. Um, nothing there says that. Uh, it says you have to be a man who knows how to treat a woman right. Uh, and of course, the reason for that is because uh, the marriage analogy is a way of explaining Christ's relationship to the church, right? And if you don't know how Christ loves his bride, then how can you be an under shepherd to the good shepherd? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So of course that would be the primary qualification that you know how to treat women. Um, and the SBC does, I don't think they do. So. No, cause I, I mean, them along with so many others are more caught up in your, I guess, charisma. They're more caught up in like, can you, can people flock to you? 
mm-hmm. are people going to run to you? Like when you get on stage, can you put on a good show? And they completely overlook like first, first Timothy and Titus, husband of one wife, kind of like you were saying. And then after that, the long list of characteristics that show like what kind of, when you're like, what, what, what kind of man are you? What kind of husband are you? Right. Like, and they only focus on that, the one little part that talks about teaching. And they take a look with that and overlook all the character flaws, yeah. which are the, the, the big thing. Yeah. Well, the consequence of that has been rather dis- disastrous, I would say, because, um, you know, the non-denominational movement, which we know is, uh, was financially supported by the SBC, uh, created all of these parachurch organizations and you know, if you go out and get a Christian book, um, there's a very good chance that it's written by a parachurch organization and not somebody, <clears throat> not a publisher that uh, has those, you know, those manuscripts run by theologians, you know, educated theologians who are scanning it for, for, for bad doctrine and fleshing that out. You don't get that. And so what happened uh, was you had a whole bunch of parachurch organizations, these publishers, putting out teachings about men and women that were based on these false views that you would find in the SBC. And uh, you had regular, everyday, self-professing evangelicals who thought that they were following scripture by following right. what, what these what these books said. And I think... <clears throat> It should come as no surprise that we have this deconstructionist movement right now. Um, I think that the unfortunate part is that deconstruction is, you know, it's, it's about, it's supposed to be about deconstructing this bad theology, but what ends up getting, you know, swooped up into that is Christianity itself. And but this should not be a surprise because this doctrine that came out of the SBC, especially about men and women, is is false. It should be de- deconstructed. Um, and none of that is to say that the egalitarians have have the right arguments on that either. No, yeah, of course. And I think the uh, a lot of the the toxic teaching that has come out of a lot of these evangelical groups like the SBC and such have fueled and give a fire to egalitarianism and feminism because if what these people over here would teach me is wrong, then what's right is probably over here. Mm-hmm. And they're saying a lot of things that make me, that make, that make uh, men and women uh, feel, feel better about where they think they need to be. Yeah. And so if like, so like, yeah, if those bad teachings are wrong, then these over here must be right. So I'm just going to give it a try and see how it goes. Yeah, well, it's. Um, I actually have an article about this pattern of deconstruction that I've that I've observed am, among evangelical women. So these are women who grew up in evangelical cir- circles, usually purity culture, complementarian types. And the thing that I've observed is that when those women who are hearing the gospel or the closest thing to the gospel that they've heard. And then they also hear these teachings on women, um, which if you look at them, they're actually contradictory. The, uh, I, 
I've said for a long time that I think complementarianism is a second gospel. It's a works-based gospel for women. Um, but when you compare those two, then questions start coming up. Like, how does the, you know, how does this view of women square with this view of the gospel? And so those women naturally start asking questions and they go to their, you know, their, their pastor or whomever. And, uh, you know, the pastor gives sort of these superficial questions intended to shoo her away and let her know everything's okay. Both are true, even if you can't reconcile them in your mind. Um, and uh, after this back and forth of asking questions and not getting real answers that actually reconcile the two, right? Then you start looking outside. And when you look outside, you find these egalitarian, like I, I think social media really facilitated this. You step into an egalitarian Facebook group and suddenly you find there's all these other women and men who have the same exact questions or saying, okay, if this is true about the gospel, how can this be true about complementarianism? And so now you have a community of individuals who can re relate to one another, right? And they start raising more questions and more questions, and you take those questions back to your pastor. Well, now the questions that you're bringing back to your pastor, well, they sound, they sound a lot like feminism, or they sound a lot like egalitarianism. And so now there's this antagonism that exists between the pastor and these women who are asking questions. And so now the woman senses this and she realizes, she starts to realize, oh, I'm the enemy. So of course she's going to leave. And where does she go to? She goes to the group of people who have, that she can relate to who, who don't treat her like an enemy. They have wrong answers. In fact, people have asked me why I'm not egalitarian or feminist. And I tell them, well, it's not because of their theology, although that's a separate issue. But the reason why I'm not egalitarian is because of my philosophical education. I look at their arguments. I say, I just say, these are bad arguments. Um, and, you know, so it's my philosophical training that keeps me from being egalitarian or feminist. But theologically, um, you know, I hold to uh, qualified male-only ordination. But I also see some terrible arguments uh, that are used to support that. Right. Um, but at any rate, so of course you have women leaving the church in droves. Uh, they were asking questions and didn't get answers and even were treated as though they were enemies. And, uh, to varying degrees, uh, I think the example of, of Amy Bird was probably the most extreme. I shouldn't say the most ex extreme, but the most visible um, example of being treated like an enemy once you start asking too many questions, right? So, of course, you have this <laughs> this divide. And if you have women who haven't really been trained in the gospel, or they read through those those passages about women, and let me tell you something: because I spent time in that non-denominational church um, <clears throat> where they, you know, they promoted. John MacArthur and John Piper and Doug Wilson, um, reading through all of those pink passages, the passages that are, that are used to, um, refer to, you know, women and their role in the church or the family or whatnot. Those are 
those are incredibly distorted now. And it takes uh, some conscious effort to uh, untwist untwist what's been taught to you, those, untwist those distortions from what scripture is actually saying. Um, but that's difficult when you also have some of these other pastors who are very well-intentioned, they, they don't have these misogynistic sort of views, but they also don't want to touch this topic with the 10-foot pole. Um, and they'll say things like, you know, in their, in their sermons, they'll get to uh, the passage about women submit and submitting to their husbands. And they'll preface that by saying, this is a notoriously difficult passage in scripture. <laughs> but I hear that for every single passage that talks about women. So on the one hand, we have the perspicuity, perspicuity of scripture, right? The gospel is supposed to be clear to us. And on the other hand, every single passage about women is very difficult and, you know, no notoriously difficult to interpret. So is God confused about women or are you confused about women? Because it doesn't make sense if, if scripture is clear and the gospel is clear, then it doesn't make sense that uh, that becomes confusing when women enter into the picture. And yet that's what so many women have been taught through evangelical circles, through these parachurch organizations, and they're not getting their questions answered, except by the egalitarians. So the the pattern is the pattern is striking, but it's there. That's actually a really good point. That the that the egalitarian and feminist um feminism is actually the ones that are willing to answer the questions. And like speaking as somebody who pastored church for about seven years and hopes to do so again, I mean sooner than later, I cannot wrap my head around being a pastor and being upset that anybody from my church would be asking me questions. That just, that doesn't make sense. And if, if you don't want, if you're, if you're not up for that, then you should go do something else. Yeah. Like, I mean, your job is to like, to, is to teach me, teach me quick. And like when you're, when you have people that are eager to learn yeah. and that have, Taking the, the a moment just to walk up to you and ask you a question, you don't even have to. You don't have to like be Google. Like you don't have to know everything. But yeah. like if you don't know, like let's let's figure that. Let's just figure it out together. Like you know, I'm not really sure. Give me some time and I'll get back to you. Or, yeah. Um, I'm not really sure. Like why don't we come back and talk about this at another time? Like even if if that's if that's what's stopping you, then like put your pride down for a moment mm. and let let your people know that it's okay to not know everything. And take some time to dig into it. Yeah. But like, I can't just wrap my head around how pastors would be offended that the people would ask questions. That's the stupidest thing. Well, I got to say, it's the reason why I left the, the Lutheran church. Now, I love the, the Lutheran church, um, but I started asking questions of my Lutheran pastor at the time. This was in high school, I guess in college, really. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm very inquisitive and I will push questions, um, to, to their max. And certainly at the time I was not, um, my, my Socratic questioning skills were not refined then. So it was, you know, much more, uh, 
immature um, and unskilled in, in my questioning. But nonetheless, I was asking questions. I forget what the topic was on. But I was asking questions and the answers that I kept getting were what I call Sunday school answers. They're the very quick, um, superficial, we don't have time to get into this, uh, but here's something to satiate you. Um, I kept getting those kinds of answers. And this wasn't even in Sunday school. Like uh, I would go out, you know, go during the week uh, when, uh, you know, church isn't in session, pastor's just in his office. Uh, preparing a sermon or whatever, and trying to get answers to deeper questions now that nobody else is around and we're not distracted, right? And he didn't like it. He wanted me to take the superficial answers and go away. And so I went away. Um, But he thought that I was walking away from the faith and even told my mom at one point, I think we've lost her, was was his words. And I mean, it's strange because of I have I have three brothers, so of my my parents' four children, um, I'm the one who has learned the most of, of theology. Um, and I think for a while, I probably talked up that experience to my being uh, female, but I don't think that that's true. My uh, my oldest brother recently conveyed to me that. He has had similar experiences where he's asking these tough questions of his pastor, and his pastor is is wanting to give these very superficial these superficial answers that just don't answer the question. And you know these are these are tough questions like, if God was good, why and and God is all knowing, then why would he um, give Adam and Eve the option to sin if he knew what the result was going to be? right? That's a tough question, but it's one of those questions that can make or break somebody's experience in the church. And he didn't get an answer to that question. So, um, you know, I think <laughs> that's a very roundabout way of, of coming back and saying, you know, agreeing with your point that pastors should be open to these questions. Um, there's what I have learned over time is that scripture can stand up to some pretty tough scrutiny, but you have to be willing to, uh, you have to be willing to test it, right? And scripture, scripture tells us that, tells us test the spirits to know if they're from God. Um, so, you know, now I've, now I do this, now I have a philosophy degree and I teach critical thinking using Socratic method, which is all about asking questions and and dig, digging deeper. And all of that has to do with the fact that I know that the truth can stand up to scrutiny. So pastors shouldn't be afraid of that. No, and I think a lot of there's I think with a lot with a lot of pastors, and I'm I i do not say this as this is a good excuse, but I think there's a, a lot of times there's a sometimes I think that pastors are afraid that they're going to, I guess, get exposed. Mm. And it's like, oh, well, if they know that I don't know this, then they can't trust me to, 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 to be their pastor, to be their shepherd. Yeah. Or if I tell them I don't know, then they're not going to trust me whenever I come and deliver the next sermon or, or mm. that kind of thing, or they won't allow me to counsel them or counsel right. yeah. them. Um, <laughs> don't cancel them. And so, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, not that I'm saying that's a that's a good reason, um, but I think there's the there's an unspoken pressure that because I'm a pastor, I have to have all the answers for everything. Right, and that should be far from true. Um, right. you're, you didn't speak creation into existence with nothing. Right, that's God. Um, but you should still. I think pastors being able to say, you know what, I don't know, mm-hmm. tells your people, and I, I know I already said this, but it lets your people know that it's okay to not know anything. But you shouldn't have, to, you shouldn't feel that pressure. Right. But I don't know should be followed up with, I'll look into that, or let's look into that together. Let's dig into some of these things together. Yeah. And not just given like these pathetic answers that leave your the people you're shepherding disappointed and let down and wanting more. That and so like that's that's terrible that happens. That happens to y'all and it happens to a lot of people all the time. Yeah. Well, what I tell my students is that they shouldn't be afraid of I don't know. That I don't know is the compass rose of discovery. It's pointing you in the in the direction that you now need to go. Right. Um, and part of the point of the Socratic method is not to show others what they don't know, but to recognize in yourself what you don't know. Um, and then being prompted to go ask more questions and see if you can't figure it out. And so, you know, uh, and this is just, this is, known in critical thinking circles as intellectual humility. But that's just basic humility, if you look at scripture, right, is understanding that you don't have all the answers. And pastors certainly don't have all of the answers. Um, And so if you or a pastor or anybody else listening to this can get comfortable with, I don't know, and realize that that just means, you know, that that's pointing them in, in the direction that they should now go in order to learn something new. There's nothing intimidating about it, you know, where we're taught, and I blame public schools for this, although I think probably evangelical culture also please, uh, take, <laughs> needs to take some blame for this, but this idea that we don't know, uh, we don't know the answer, right? You're going to get... Uh, you're going to get a red X on your paper. You're going to get an F if you don't know the answer, right? We've been taught from 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 childhood that if we don't know the answer, we're wrong and there's a problem. And that's just not the case. <laughs> Most of us do not have enough knowledge to be able to say, hey, I know everything. Um, in fact, uh, you know, we don't know more than we know. And uh, that should... Uh, prompt humility, but it should also prompt wonder about the world and, you know, God's creation and also about God's special revelation in, in scripture. No, that's, that's a really good point. Especially when you, that the point about the, as you're growing up, the, um, you're continuously punished for not knowing mm-hmm. within the education system. Yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of people have probably thought about that and that's worth that's definitely worth noting. Oh my gosh. When I do, um, my, the very first time I did my online class, um, I had a mixture of students, uh, cause this was right during the pandemic and some were homeschoolers and some were public schoolers and the homeschoolers were much more inclined to 
um, spit out answers that might have been wrong, right? <laughs> the public schoolers were terrified. I could not get them to engage because, and, you know, I'd have offline conversations with them and I'd say, Hey, what, what can I, what can I help you with? And they would say to me, I'm afraid that I'm going to be wrong. And that's become a deep seated fear. Uh, um, so it's real, it's out there. Our, our culture has, uh, enforced and reinforced it. And during the form of formative years of our lives, and it takes a conscious effort to, uh, untangle that. Uh, so if you can get comfortable with your, I don't know, then it becomes much, much less intimidating. See, I remember because um, I went to public school and, um, you're, you may not be punished for not knowing what well, you are on the assignment, mm-hmm. but like if you're in class and, um, the teacher's asking you questions and you raise your hand or if you don't raise your hand, you can still get called on. Yep. And, um, if you don't have the answer, you may not be like verbally like shunned or ostracized, but you are silently and passively by the teacher. Oh yeah. And that's actually used quite often. That's sometimes it's worse. Mm-hmm. And but the person who has all the answers or appears to, yep. they get they, they get the something special. Yep. And if you don't know, it's not because like of who you are, because you're a kid and you're a person. Yeah. Your I don't know is obviously is automatically blamed to well you're lazy well and sometimes that doesn't even come from the fact that you don't know you might have the answer uh but you've got you know a, you've got some some timid, timidness when it comes to uh you know answering that question vocally i've right. uh, there's a book that i really love uh it's called quiet by susan kane and it's about introversion and introverts tend to be those kids in class that don't participate in class dis- in discussion. And it's not because they don't, uh, they don't know what's going on or because they're lazy or because any of these other caricatures. Um, and it may not even be because they're shy, but introversion, uh, causes your brain to work a little bit differently. And so something like being put on the spot is it just, <laughs> It just makes your brain like stop functioning for a second. Um, you your, put me on the races. You start to sweat. <laughs> yeah, you can put me on the spot. This, this still happens to me. You put me on the spot, and I'm like, "Oh, I wasn't prepared to answer that question." <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, that idea. In fact, I took I took English 102 in college three times. That was argumentative writing. And I did fine with the writing part, but I always failed the class because I couldn't participate in the discussions. Um, and uh, that's very typical of, of introverts. Like by the time you figured out what you're going to say, right? Because you you internalize it. By the time you figure out what you're going to say, the the discussion has moved on from that particular topic. So you know you can't bring it back up. But um, yeah, I would say our culture very much punishes actively or passively the I don't know or the lack of gregariousness in in answering the question. Um, and that reinforces uh, bad patterns of, of thought. It reinforces, you know, this idea that though I, you know, I'm not, I'm not fast on my feet, so therefore I must not think well. Well, that's not true. Uh, um, you know, we all 
we all process things differently. And there's a reason for that. And it's important that we process things differently. So, like, that's you're ultimately passively teaching students about how to live life, that you're teaching them they have behavioral issues, they have personality issues. Right. There must be something wrong with me because I don't do well here. Yeah. And this is how my government dictates who's smart and who's not. Um, like, I remember, because you would talk about, like, not doing well in class because you didn't, um, like, not doing well, like, on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I remember I had to take summer school for, because I failed English, because I would refuse to go present my papers before the, the class. Ugh. And it ended up being, like, half of the grade. Yeah. And whenever my turn to go present, I just I would refuse, and I just turned my paper. And I ended up, like, having to go to summer school. Goodness. <laughs> um, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Because I've learned how, like, how important I basically had to develop some of that skill as an adult. Oh yeah, I, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to do this as a kid, but yeah. I didn't. I didn't do my first public speech um, until I did my debate with uh, Walter Block at the Soho Forum in December of 2019, and I was terrified. Huh. That was your first. That was my first. That's huh. awful. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, part of that uh, was me knowing that I needed to stretch myself in that way. But I also knew, uh, I knew the, the content, right? I, I didn't feel like I was going to have any sort of gotchas that I wouldn't be able to answer. Although I prepped like mad for that, just to make sure that <laughs> I wasn't put on the spot with something that I couldn't, couldn't ask or answer. But yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't learn how to do that until December, 2019. And mostly because I had been persuaded from childhood that uh, there was something inherently wrong with me because I was shy or timid or, you know, whatever. Um, And that's not the case. I'm still an introvert. I've learned how to speak much better, um, especially since the debate. But um, it doesn't change my personality. And I've actually been able to uh, make distinctions between what my actual personality is as an introvert versus, you know, some of those uh, lies that was taught to me as a child, and also just skills that I need to work and improve upon. And, you know, so at any rate, those, those are, those are important. So um, I'd like to ask you this, going kind of back to what we were talking about earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you, from, if I understand correctly, you have issues with feminism, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and, uh, the patriarchy stuff. Yep. Um, where do you, would you say that best describes what you understand that scripture teaches in regards to, like, the roles of men and women? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the best answer that I can give is that I'm confessional. And I, I almost don't like that answer anymore because that was the answer that Amy Bird gave for a very long time was I'm confessional. <clears throat> and it almost sounds like a cop out at this point because it doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot when people who share your confession are very much on the side of complementarianism or patriarchalism. Um, and it doesn't much help when you have some agreements 
with at least criticisms that the egalitarians or feminists are, are coming up with. Um, because then they put you in the, in this, you know, they put you in the complementarian patriarchal camp. And so they won't listen to you. And that camp will put you in the egalitarian feminist camp and they won't listen to you. And so it's frustrating because, um, you know, I can say, well, I'm confessional. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't typically mean a whole lot, you know, because you have that divide. Um, I go back to the gospel and if the gospel is true, then there are things taught by complementarianism and patriarchy that are not true. And if the gospel is true, there are things taught by egalitarianism and feminism that are not true. Um, sorting those things out is really a matter of uh, understanding doctrine and not isogeting from, from scripture based on, you know, whatever you want it to say. And a good example would be the passage in scripture about how husbands and wives uh, submit to one another. Um, and I did, uh, I did an article on that a while back. What is it? First Corinthians seven, I think, <clears throat> um, you know, the complementarian patriarchy side of that will emphasize that women are supposed to submit. They sort of de-emphasize that men are supposed to submit. <laughs> um, and then they'll try and, you know, wiggle through that by saying, oh, well, this is about sex and so forth. And so there's, there's got to be a, a complementarity to that as well. And like, yes, duh, we understand the biological key lock analogy. Um, but then the egalitarians will be like, oh, mutual submission, mutual mutuality is, is egalitarianism. Well, no, it's not. Egalitarianism is about sameness. Um, that's where the philosophical stuff comes in. Um, so I default to the gospel always, and I have a monergistic view of that, of a monergistic view of justification and a monergistic view of sanctification. Uh, Christ did it all. Christ died on the cross for my sins. I am a sinner. I can't. There's not anything that I can do to save myself. Christ did it. And he also uh, did what is necessary for, for my righteousness, um, or to be called righteous before God, I should say. So that's the start. Um, I think also the application of Christian liberty to women is incredibly important. Um, I did this thing a while ago. Uh, it was, it was striking. I don't think I can bring it up. I don't know. Maybe I can bring it up. Um, the section in the Westminster Confession about Christian liberty, I took those sections and I inserted into them, um, feminine pronouns where they were appropriate. And by doing that, it really, uh, emphasized the reality of Christian liberty for women and how if you're going to hold to the confession and Christian liberty and say that is true of all Christians, then you cannot 
hold to things like patriarchy or complementarianism, which takes away Christian liberty. And I'm probably not going to find it. Um, yeah, I can't find it. Check one more. So, you know, that's what it is for me. It's, uh, if these things are true, if the confession is true in its entirety, uh, complementarianism and patriarchy cannot be true. Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't believe that there is no complementarity between the sexes. I absolutely believe that. Um, that is true biologically. Um, that is true just in terms of our general identity. But I don't think that that is, I don't think that that is something that can be distilled down to prescriptions of manhood and womanhood. Um, I've never fit the, uh, the prescription for biblical womanhood according to, uh, the council of biblical manhood and womanhood. And that's not without trying, <laughs> Uh, that time that I spent in that non-denominational church, uh, I tried to be a crafty person and, you know, um, overly gregarious and, uh, you know, the, the hospitality, like I would say I'm hospitable, but not in the way, not in the Betty Crocker here, I have a casserole for you, uh, sort of way. Like if you come over to my house and you want to strike up a conversation, I, I will make you coffee. I will, you know, I will invite you into my home. We will, we will have coffee. I will give to you what, what I have available, but I'm not going to sit there and make you a casserole. Right. Um, and you know, this, uh, one of the other, one of the other caricatures was that you're not intellectual, right? That was, that was a, or is in their view, a distinctly masculine trait. Well, all evidence is to the contrary. Um, and either I'm a woman in my own right and also intellectual, or I'm intellectual and not a woman in my own right. And geez, what does that sound like? Oh, it sounds like the transgender nonsense yeah. happening right now. So right. my option was, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I never explored the idea of not that I wasn't a, a woman. Rather, I said, this is bunk. Of course, I'm a woman. That's obvious. Uh, and it just must be the case that there are women who are also intellectual. Now, uh, is that true of every woman? Is every woman interested in intellectual things? No, and they don't have to be. Um, there are certainly things that I, there was this woman at my old OPC church, um, who I love very dearly and her thing, she, <laughs> she had the whole persona, right? The, the Betty Crocker, uh, always wearing dresses and floral, floral things. And like, she loved to put on the annual tea party. Um, and so completely opposite personality from me. But I told her one day, I said, I really love that you love doing this. Like, it's not my thing. Um, I'll come to the tea party, <laughs> but it's more like, 
you know, I'm, I'm coming and doing this because I know fellowship, fellowship with my fellow Christian women is important, but it's not, not my thing. Like I could, I'd rather have some coffee and crawl into a corner and maybe have a one-on-one conversation, but not have this huge tea party. But I loved that that was her thing. Right. Uh, and it was important that that was her thing. And so when it comes to the differences between men and women, what I like to say is, uh, egalitarianism will flatten gender distinctions, but complementarianism flattens gender dynamics. Um, women are, when women are not all the same, men are not all the same and we don't have to be, um, you know, we are all image bearers of God, but we all reflect that image in different ways. And that doesn't make us less of a man or less of a woman. And, uh, I really can't help, but think that part of, and I won't say it's the total cause, but I do think that it has contributed to this transgender confusion, which, you know, if you don't fit the prescription for womanhood or for manhood, and that's what it is, then you're left with this dichotomy. Either I'm not a woman or the prescription is wrong. If you're not allowed to challenge the people who are passing down the the description, what do you have left? So, yeah. um, I know that's that's not a, a, a neat and tidy answer. I can't say, oh, well, I'm this, you know, ideological term or whatever. Uh, I think the best way it, to describe me is that I'm neither. I recognize that there are gender distinctions, and I recognize that there are gender dynamics, and both are important. No, that's, I mean, that's definitely fair. Um, I do think that I'm, I'm with you on the part, for sure, about how saying that this is what a woman is versus, and this is what a man is. Like, women do this, men do this. When you catch yourself not fully fitting that description, I can see how that can create the confusion. Mm-hmm. And that can play a role in the whole transgenderism thing. Uh, that's something that I've kind of had questions about myself, is when, when, when a man doesn't have all these things that are considered masculine-like characteristics and traits, then does that make him feminine? Does that make him Obviously, it doesn't mean he's in the wrong body. I'm not right. like even gonna like play yeah. with like that rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But on the also on the flip side, I think that the egalitarian movements that kind of stripped away our differences play has played a role in that as as well. Yeah. Well, there's there is this philosophical idea that we're all blank slates, and I forget which philosopher said that. I want to say it was John Locke, but I don't think that's right. Um, but you know, we're either blank slates and we get to invent ourselves or everything's already predetermined for us. Um, and I would say in some sense, there are some things that are predetermined. Genetics plays a role in that. Um, and I think it's very easy to say that God intended, um, us to be, uh, certain kinds of people with certain kinds of, of interest. you know, I don't think it's an accident that I have an, an interest in philosophy and theology. Um, but, you know, the the other side of that is 
you know, maybe you don't enter, entertain this idea that, okay, you don't fit the biblical womanhood description. And so, you know, you must not be a woman. I think there are a lot of people who never entertained that idea. You know, you have lots of lots of people who are exposed to this biblical manhood, biblical womanhood thing, and they recognize that they didn't fit this prescription over here. And they never entertained the idea that perhaps they weren't, uh, you know, a man or a woman, respectively, right? Um, I'll tell you what it did do. Uh, it did give me what uh, psychology calls a, fu- a fuzzy sense of identity. I didn't know who I was. Um, the only thing that I knew was that I kept trying to be something that didn't fit, right? Um, it didn't make sense. Uh, it never worked, right? Uh, part of part of what complementarians would teach is, you know, if you've got a problem in your marriage, it's probably because you're not fitting the biblical womanhood role exactly right. Um, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's because from the guy's perspective, we always said it's your fault if you'll fix this thing, everything will fall in line. Well, <laughs> it's so frustrating because, uh, first of all, you know, <laughs> I started referring so, so complementarians like to appeal to the Proverbs 31 woman. And I started referring to, and I, when I say the Proverbs 31 woman, I mean the evangelical interpretation of that passage. Um, and that evangelical interpretation of that passage, I began calling the, the uh, Victoria's Secret model of evangelicalism because <laughs> she's a snapshot and she's a snapshot. She's photoshopped, so brushed up here and there, made to look perfect. Um, but she's also an unattainable ideal. Uh, because you can't, you can't ever, if, if you are working to become the Proverbs 31 woman, which is what complementarianism teaches, you'll never make it. Well, this goes back to the, the gospel. <laughs> of course, you're not going to make it. Right. You can't. That's the whole point. You can't. Um, and so at any rate, it just creates confusion it creates, uh, and I've seen it. I've, I've seen it used in abusive ways. On the one hand, from husbands to wives, it's like, well, you're not being this prescription enough, right? You don't have the house clean enough. You um, aren't wearing feminine enough clothing. You um, don't have your crap together the way Proverbs thirty-one woman has her crap together. Um, on the other hand, I've seen it used to abuse husbands. It's you don't have a job. What's wrong with you, slacker? Uh, that that's equally abusive. <laughs> and it's you know, so you've created these caricatures, and you've and you've said if you're a good Christian, you're going to fit this caricature, and nobody can fit the caricature because you're not supposed to. Then what what do you end up having left? Well. You start questioning your faith. You start questioning who you are. And that can lead to any number of places. Um, maybe you end up in divorce because you can't get along with, with your spouse. Um, because you, you guys have become abusive to one another in some one form or another. I mean, it's, 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 it, it's, it's depressing. 
especially since it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Um, so. At any rate, man, I went on a ranch there. It's <laughs> <laughs> all good. It's part of it. <clears throat> yeah. But so I don't know. I, uh, a lot of the, I mean, I kind of, my, in my, in my faith, I kind of grew up in the Acts 29, PCA, SBC kind of realm, right? And so, like, the complementarianism kind of, like, has always dominated that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like, not even, like, the old-school SBC complementarianism, like the Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, John Piper, that kind of stuff. Yep. And one, at one point, I realized that I'm just getting, you're not getting solid teaching, like, on what these, or what they're teaching about. Right. Um, they're just basically giving you like, these tweets, but they're preaching it from like the the pulpits, or they're actually tweeting it, but they're not actually breaking down like what those things actually mean that they're teaching. And so it's ultimately it's kind of like after years of that, I kind of realized that um, not today, years ago, that I haven't really learned like what it actually what one complementarianism complementarianism actually is. Um, I learned that it's the, it's, um, well, patriot, the patriarchy is toxic and, uh, that word is, is tainted. So we can't use that, but we're not egalitarian. So we got to come up with this new word. And, but like, it's just like, we're not, you're not actually really teaching them, like, what does it mean to be a husband? You're not actually really teaching women what does it mean to be a wife or a man and a woman to, to that point. But you're giving really good sound bites that people like, yes, I want that. I want to aspire to that. But you're not breaking those things down, right? And so, um, it's just—I don't really know what I'm getting at. That's what I'm saying. Uh, what my point is? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that happens a lot. So I'm sorry. Oh, that's um, all right. But I mean, I just kind of was like curious because I've—I think I've interacted with you on Facebook about some of this. I've seen your interaction, and I was like, well. I'm kind of curious when she says she's that dis- disagrees with the before dominant views and culture. I'm like, well, maybe I can see like where are you at in this. Um, yeah. Well, let me let me say this. Um, I would say I hold to orthodoxy insofar as um, what Scripture teaches about, uh, you know, ordination. It's for qualified men only. Emphasis on the qualified. Um, But the reason why I hold to that doesn't have anything to do with gender. Um, It has to do with Christ and the model presented in scripture. It has to do with Christ being the head of the church and that being the head of the church means uh, being a servant to the church. I will say one thing that I like about the Lutheran church is they understand the relationship of the pastor to the priesthood of all believers. And the pastor isn't above the congregation. The pastor is below the congregation. They're in service to the congregation. And I think that that's a much more apt uh, picture. Um. I also hold to the view that God made women um, 
to bear children. Now, I also believe that God gave us choice and agency over our body. And while, I mean, obviously those words are trigger words and people have come to associate those words with, you know, a right to abortion. I don't believe that those things extend to a right to abort, but it does mean if I decide I don't want to get married or I, or I want to get married and don't have, you know, don't want to have kids, I'm free to do that. That's part of Christian liberty. I don't, I don't have to do that. Um, now maybe I come to regret it, right? Maybe I think, oh, I'm just going to pursue my career and, uh, be married and that'll make me happy. And then when I'm in my forties and I'm childless, I come to realize, oh, it would have been nice to have some kids. Well, regret is part of life. That doesn't mean that you've, you know, necessarily done something unbiblical by choosing not to have kids. Um, so, um, you know, I, so I, I believe many traditional things about men and women. Um, I don't believe that they are prescriptions for, you know, the ideal Christian. I don't think that that is in the way that it's been presented, which is this prescription of behaviors and characteristics, that's not true. Uh, that's not biblical, right? The quintessential Christian is the Christian who models him or herself after Christ, which is loving your neighbor. It's, you know, it's loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's not a that's that's not a prescription in the sense that it says this is what you are going to do and look like right it's just saying when you uh when you relate to your fellow man human right it's going to be with love however that is right um if my vocation is teaching people how to think better um then I'm loving my neighbor by actually providing a good service, by actually teaching them, right? Um, not belittling them or, you know, not trying to puff myself up as, you know, the, the, the person who actually knows. Like, that, that would be unloving. Um, the fact that I'm intellectual is completely beside the point of my being, you know, female. I can be feminine. And intellectual. I can love my neighbor in my vocation. Um, I can be hospitable in my own way. It doesn't have to be casseroles. It can be coffee. <laughs> um, All casseroles taste the same, anyways. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, and so, you know, in in many senses, you know, and I I believe things like family is the foundational unit of society. I I absolutely believe that. Um, that's tr That's demonstrably true. Um, but that doesn't mean that every single woman needs to be married and making babies and hanging out in the kitchen all day. That's not what that means. Uh, it means that, you know, certain people will get married and have children and certain people won't. And uh, those people who are single are ever um are every bit as much a part of the christian family 
as married people. Um, and, you know, so our marital status doesn't make us better Christians or not. Um, whether I wear an A-line skirt with flowers on it doesn't make me a better woman or not. Uh, your, uh, you know, wanting to lift weights or not doesn't make you a better man, Christian man or not. Uh, I think we can throw those ideas out. Um, I think God made us in his image and his image is, is infinite in many ways. And while we are finite, there are an infinite number of possibilities of the way we can reflect God's image. And the way I reflect it is going to be different than the way you reflect it. And there will be commonalities, right? Love of neighbor being one of those. But how you love your neighbor and how I love my neighbor is going to be different. And that's not only okay, that's the point, right? So I, I know there's not a nice word <laughs> that can be like, carries a whatever that word is. <laughs> uh, I know there's not a nice word for it. Well, um, you're a woman of philosophy, so I'm sure you'll create one. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, now I need to, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think confessional is the best one for now. Um, yeah. You know, uh, but I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of close that thought with, by saying this, when I started looking at the Westminster Confession and sticking feminine pronouns in where they were appropriate so that, you know, a woman reading that could really see it as applied to her, I cannot tell you how many women read those and were, their minds were blown by, by the, what scripture says about women, right? If Christian liberty is true, um, then there's no man-made authority that stands between me and God. Uh, that's mind-blowing. And yet complementarianism and patriarchy teaches that there is an authority that stands between me and God, and that's a husband or a father or a pastor or whatnot. So I don't think Christian women, by and large, have really soaked that in. I don't think that's really been taught to them. Um, and when women come with, with questions, if they're treated like a pariah, of course they're going to leave. Nobody likes being treated like a pariah. So. So in, uh, yes, you mentioned this a second ago, kind of. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, like, so I'm, I'm, I'm with you on Christian liberty, uh, but there's still certain things that you hear that kind of like make you kind of question things and cons be concerned about things. Um, is it a bad thing that you see less and less people uh, having children? Um, generally speaking, People who want children should have children. Right. People who don't want children should probably not have children. Um, right. At least at that stage where they don't want them. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I've 
I have seen good marriages and healthy families and the fruit that grows from that. And it's wonderful and amazing. But it takes a relationship that is unique and dynamic that not everybody has. And simply being married uh, does not create that dynamic. Um, and I don't think that enough is said about a woman's uh, power and agency over her own body, much less the knowledge that she should have about her body. And not just the fact that she's capable of reproduction, but what that means for her overall health and life, which not even the medical establishment will acknowledge. Um, when you have women who don't have enough knowledge about themselves, about their capacity for good relationships, um, and all they have is their intuition that they don't want to bring a child into the world, I think that should be respected. Now, is there a problem that fewer and fewer people are having children? Well, uh, potentially, at least insofar as a productive society that can get itself out of poverty, right? Um, yeah. And uh, especially over the past couple of years, we seem to have been losing lots of people left and right to that thing that shall not be named. <laughs> and that's nice. that's great. <laughs> yeah, since the the Voldemort of the medical community. Um, <laughs> Is that going to create a problem in the long run? Yes, it's going to create a problem in the in the long run. And compounding that is the fact that uh, Western society is uh, having a crisis of identity and a crisis in relationships. And that man, that includes Christianity. Christianity is not. We are American evangelicalism has not set itself apart from the world. They are dealing with abuse, sometimes in more ways uh, than non-Christian families are. And so if we can't deal with these questions of relationship, these questions of uh, sex, man, I don't know if you saw that uh, TGC article that came out yesterday that's been all over Twitter. Um, but there have been a number of books and articles and things written by Christians talking about sex, which just leads me to believe that Christians really don't know anything about sex. Um, so we have problem with, problems with relationships. We have problems with sex. We have problems with uh, agency, making decisions for ourselves. And we have problems with identity. And those are, I mean very easy to say that as a Christian, our identity is in Christ. But press that, press that statement a little bit and ask, what does it mean that your identity is in Christ? Well, from a, uh, from the standpoint of salvation, it means that you are identified with Christ um, as being, you know, one of God's children and redeemed 
okay, what does that mean when you go to work the next day? What does that mean in relation to your children, in relation to your wife, in relation to your boss? What does that mean? Uh, well, we don't want to get into that. And that's, that's the response. And so we have to have an identity, uh, an individual identity that has to mean something, but Christians are afraid of that. So, you know, I think on the one hand, it's not surprising to me, except for medical Voldemort. It's not surprising to me (laughs) that, um, we're experiencing this, you know, this, this lack of, uh, you know, this, this lack of family, this lack of procreation. Um, I don't think that that's surprising, but I think Christians need to, if we're going to take it seriously, I mean, you have parents taking their kids to drag queen story hour and kids are getting that normalized into their life. Look, Christians are going to have to face, we're going to have to face these questions. We can't just be like, oh, this is disgusting and weird. And I'm going to put on my blinders because that's crazy. Yes, it's crazy. But those children are going to grow up believing that that's normal. And the church needs to have an answer for that. And it can't just be, you crazy, sick, psycho, go away. Right. That's not what the gospel is. So, And we don't have answers for that right now, which means we're already behind. Again. Exactly. We're already behind. Yeah. But it comes from this, la, 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 I don't want to hear this. I don't want to talk about this. Oh, you're egalitarian. I can't talk to you. Oh, you're a patriarchalist. I can't talk to you. Um, that's where <laughs> we're, we're canceling ourselves. I think evangelicals were canceling people before canceling was a thing. Um, it doesn't help. The fact that we can't talk to each other anymore doesn't help, but these are very serious issues that we have to talk about because we are going into a world that is pagan, um, looks much more like the early church and you've lost your, you know, American Christendom to use Tim Keller's phrase. You've lost that. You've lost the assumption that people are Christian. You've lost the assumption that people understand what a healthy sexual ethic is. You've lost that. And there's no amount of denying reality is going to get it back. So it's time to face up and figure out how we're going to address these issues. One of the things that I think traditional Protestantism got wrong that still still lingers around today was the separating themselves from the culture. Hmm. And I thought that like a lot of like the uh, the neo reform movement from like the nineties or two thousands tried to to establish was we are reformed we're unapologetic about that but we're also not going to separate ourselves from the culture we're going to go live on mission as the, pos- the popular phrase was and we're going to interact we're going to be in the world but not of it I hate when scripture comes cliche. Um, yes, but like kind of like what you were you were saying, like we we have to be we have to be able to give answers for these things. We have to be able to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. We can't just like say, "Oh, you're disgusting, sicko, get the away from me." Right. But like that's not you don't see that anywhere in scripture. You don't see that in no. Acts or anything. Um, and we're already behind on a lot of things, like we just said. And so, like the i the the separating ourselves from the the culture because we are too prideful, too embarrassed, too ashamed, whatever it may be, 
Um, it's not going to address anything. It's not going to make things better. Right. Um, it might make you give you the, the false solution of being safe. Um, but that's about all it's going to, all it's going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, as Christians, we have now an aversion to sin, which is good. We should have an aversion to sin. So it's very easy, you know, to scroll through Twitter and come past a, a video of drag queen story hour and go, ugh, and want to move on. Like, that's a good sign, right? That you're a Christian because this is an aversion. Um, and I'm not saying embrace drag queen story hour, but um, it's not good. Like, I think about when Paul goes into Athens, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, as he's going into the city, he sees the statues for the pagan gods mm-hmm. and the statues make him angry. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't get angry and turn back around and go the other direction. Exactly. He gets angry and that fuels him to go in and do what God called him, sent him to do there. Yes. And he goes, he debates, and like he leaves the city with some that he won over. Right. And so like when we see the, the evil, we don't turn around and run away, but we move forward in confidence, so we should. Right. So recognizing this in our culture, right? Um Yes, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to teach my kids that drag queen story hour is not cool. But now you have, now you really do have a mission field, right? Yeah. There really is a mission field in a way that uh, Americans alive today have not seen unless they've, you know, been to non-Christian cultures. Um, and yeah, it should, it should inspire our wanting to share the gospel, wanting to share the good news, not say, uh, not turn our back on, on these people, not say, oh, you sick heathens, you know, be gone with you. No, 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 no. We were called to bring the gospel to a dying world. And it is ever so prevalent in our face that it is dying in so many ways, literally and figuratively. And that should be prompting us to say the world needs the gospel Um, and we need to be preaching the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Christ has died for our sins. He knows how sinful we are. He knows how depraved we are. And he loved us enough to, to sacrifice himself on the cross and cross on our behalf. Um, you know, that's not beating people over the head and being, being like, you sick weirdo. How can you be like this? This is an affront to Jesus. Yes, it's an affront to Jesus. You were an affront to, to Jesus as well. Um, we were, we were all an affront to Jesus and he came and he died on our behalf while we were still his enemy. So, um, you know, it's time to accept where we are in our culture. It's time to have conversations with other Christians, hear what they're saying, what their concerns are, but also realize um, this is a time to be spreading the gospel, not be reclusive and exclusive and drawing into ourselves and into our little cliques and um, withdrawing from the world. It's like in regards to like what you just said earlier about uh, not beating people over the head with it. One of the things that I I've gone I've gone back to over and over again with various different people 
it's a very simple truth. Um, but like, whatever, especially when I work um, around like younger people at like college age people who are more influenced with, I guess, what we call like postmodernism and just love people, my kind of thing is, I you start to tell them that, yeah, go ahead and love people, but love without truth is ultimately useless. And that's one of the things that scripture teaches us is go forward in love and in truth. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if you're talking to somebody who is more influenced by a more fundamental, fundamentalist way of life, a legalistic way of life, like, well, I'm just going to give them the truth if they can't handle it, it's not on me. Mm-hmm. Well, like, truth without love is just as useless as love without truth. They have to go hand in hand. Uh, you end up a pagan without one, or you end up as a legalistic Pharisee without the other one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's true. I've seen people. I mean, it's it's twisted on both sides, right? You get an right. antinomian view of that, and you get a, a legalistic view of that. The legalistic view is, um, well, I'm going to give you tough love, right? My yeah. beating you over the head with the Bible is tough love. Wake up, buddy, <laughs> right? That's not how it works. Um, Romans 2, 4 uh, is Paul explaining that God brings us to faith through his loving kindness, Right. God doesn't beat us over the head with scripture. Um, and I think one good exercise for people to do <laughs> is to ask themselves, what does it mean that God loves us? Um, because that's going, to, that's, that's where we get our definition of love from is from God and his love towards us. And, uh, if you do that, if you actually learn about God's love for us, uh, then you get a very, a, a very much clearer picture about what it means to love your neighbor and love your enemy as yourself. So, uh, I know that there's, there's a lot of, you know, people on the legalistic end of things who are like, oh, God's love. We don't want to talk about that because it's been misused. Well, yes, it's been misused. Um, but it's also not secondary or tertiary or anything like that to God's justice. God is just, and he is also loving. And those things in many ways go hand in hand. Uh, and you can't downplay God's love to his justice, just like you cannot downplay his justice to his love. So, um, yeah. I think when people roll their eyes at the idea of God's love, it usually is a good indicator that they haven't been taught what God's love is biblically. They've been taught something else. Mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that I cannot be a Christian, or more specifically, I can't be reformed and be libertarian. Uh, more time, more times than I probably should have been. And so, what is libertarian, or what is the uh, mis- misunderstanding of it? So. Libertarianism is a political philosophy. It is uh, based on two foundational principles. Uh, One is self-ownership, and one is the corresponding obligation to not aggress against others. So self-ownership is just the idea that you own yourself. First objection that Christians raise to this is that uh, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. And this is true. So as a Reformed Libertarian, I do not believe that I own myself in relation to God. 
Um, God has given me a stewardship by giving me life. He's given me a stewardship over my body. I have a responsibility to, um, to, to walk according to his word. And so I steward my life. But in relation to other people, nobody else has a higher claim uh, on me than I do. So I own myself in relation to other people and other people own themselves in, in relation to myself. And along with that is a corresponding obligation to not initiate aggression against another person or their property. So that's where the uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't rape, um, that where those rules come into play. And these are all very intuitive rules. It, it doesn't take a Christian to understand that you don't murder people. Um, it doesn't take a Christian to understand that you don't steal. These are self-evident truths. And granted, those things have been <laughs> twisted throughout time and people have used uh, different reasons to justify their murder, you know, their, their murdering or stealing or raping or whatnot. But uh, that's what libertarianism is based on. And as a political philosophy, it's addressing the question of what we call the first use of aggression. So this is, um, you know, we, we say nobody has the right to initiate or the first use of aggression. Um, but we do have a right to respond in a way that gets that aggression to stop or to provide restitution when it's when it's occurred. And so in that respect, we have civil governance. Civil governance is there to provide uh, restitution, rec recompense for when those rights violations occur, when uh, aggression is, is initiated. And uh, this is founded are grounded in, in scripture in the principle of lux talionis, um, which is basically the, the eye for an eye pr principle. Um, although we would say that that's a, that eye for an eye principle is a maximum standard, right? You don't have to. Uh, so like some people would use that to defend the death penalty. I'm not a fan of de the death penalty, mostly because the state is terrible at pardon the pun, executing it. Uh, um, <laughs> they execute innocent people. And, you know, when the state executes innocent people, they're murderers. Um, so libertarianism is also saying that civil governance is held to the sa same standards we are. So civil governance cannot steal. Civil governance cannot murder. Civil governance cannot rape. Um, none of those things are acceptable. And when we look at the state, we see that the state is inherently based on theft, the first use of violence, uh, or threat of violence. Um, when we have war, it's because states are making war. Um, and so we look at the state uh, as inherently illegitimate, and we separate that from proper civil governance by pointing out that the state has monopolized civil governance. They've said, we're the only ones who are allowed to uh, govern civilly. And then what they do is they uh, expand their reach and they say, uh, well, we not only have to deal with theft, um, but now we have to 
also deal with the fact that there are people who are poor. And so we need to make that right as well. And so they start sort of siphoning, siphoning into their, um, siphoning into their, you know, their umbrella, things that, that they shouldn't be dealing with. Um, so at any rate, that's libertarianism in a nutshell. So, um, and you can hear more on, uh, the podcast that I co-host reformlibertarians.com. Uh, that's plural libertarians. Um, we have the reformed libertarians podcast, and we also have the reformed, uh, libertarianism statement, which really breaks down, um, how we view society and governance and, um, economics, uh, and human rights and things like that, uh, and how we square that with scripture and the confessions, um, that can all be found on our, on our website, reformlibertarians.com. But that's, so that's it in a nutshell. Um, and yeah, we, obviously we defend that from a reformed perspective, but we believe that libertarianism really is the best, best expression of Christian political thought. Uh, how did you end up finding your way to libertarianism? Um, so I became a libertarian in 2008 with Ron Paul. Um, nice. And yeah, so totally part of the Ron Paul revolution. Uh, um, and that's, uh, it's really funny because that was, that was the first election where I had an opportunity to actually participate in the Republican primary. So I grew up in a Republican home. And uh, I remember there being just all of these candidates on the stage. I think there was something like 15, maybe, Republican candidates during that election. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I need to be a responsible voter. So how the heck am I going to choose? And I thought, oh, well, you've got the Constitution, and the Constitution lays out what the role of the president is. So I should go read that and then figure out who's the most aligned with the Constitution. Well, of course, that was Ron Paul. Um, and uh, at any rate, the the thing that I had the hardest time coming around to was his foreign policy, and I totally blame my military family upbringing on that. <laughs> um, but eventually, I came to see see the 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 uh, truth and value of a non interventionist foreign policy, and that has mostly to do with how I've watched my military member, family members deteriorate from war. Uh, and so I f feel very strongly now uh, against war and against a standing military. So there you go. I'm a U.S. Air Force veteran who is anti-war. Um, it's fascinating how many veterans are actually anti-war. Yeah. And I think people should pay more attention to that. Yeah. Um, I do make a point to um not vilify soldiers you know the people who are actually yeah. doing the fighting i place uh a large part of the blame on the pentagon on the generals on the people giving the orders and you know there's a debate to be had over whether or not it's good and just to follow orders. That's a completely different debate. But um, the reason why I don't give 
uh, most soldiers, sometimes if they <laughs> being rude and abusive to me, then I'll, I will hit back. But, um, mostly because I know from my family's experience, uh, with PTSD that the only way that they can psychologically hold themselves together is by rationalizing what they did in war. Um, and that question always comes up and from a psychological standpoint, if they lose that, they do something called fragment. And that's the equivalent of having a mental breakdown, which many times you don't come back from and it would just absolutely destroy them. So, um, when I'm critical of the military, it's 99% of the time, the, uh, those who are in command, those who are giving the orders, those who know better, um, rather than the soldiers. But yeah. I know we're running out of time. If I can ask you one more question. Sure. And I, if it's, how can Christians better read Romans 13, 1 through 7? Well, you can start by going to reformedlibertarians.com because we have an episode on it. Um, I think that's our second episode actually is on Romans 13. Um, there's also, uh, you can go to my website, mereliberty.com, um, and, and see much of the same there. Um, my co-host and friend Gregory Baus has, uh, I think a very, um, reformed orthodox take on reformed, uh, excuse me, on Romans 13 that is, much more aligned with what scripture says and uh, does not create an idol out of the state. Um, that's a very broad, broad answer to that question. Um, but I do believe that we read Romans 13 wrong when we assume that um, that includes when states are acting outside of their God-ordained authority as, you know, Far as, as far as civil governance is concerned, you know, if they're going to monopolize civil governance and say that they're the only ones who are allowed to do it, then they have to do it the way God designed civil governance. Uh, and as soon as they extend themselves outside of that, um, I mean, there's a problem just by monopolizing it. But when they step outside of the proper role of civil governance, uh, they are acting in a way that God did not ordain. And, uh, therefore Christians do not have to obey. So this is not just your, the very typical answer that you might've heard from say R.C. Sproul, uh, was you, um, you obey the state as long as the state doesn't command what God forbids or forbids what God commands. Like that's a very succinct answer, but we would say, no, you don't have to obey the state in any area that uh, is not proper civil governance. So for example, uh, and this is pretty easy, if you know your local city councilor says you can't collect rainwater on your property, um, that's yeah. outside of civil governance. You don't have to obey that. Um, so, and more to the point, you're not sinning by disobeying that. Um, yeah. So at any rate, if anybody wants to hear that take on Romans 13, I do want to also say this. One of the criticisms that we get as, as, liber as libertarians is that we don't have uh, a high view of authority. We have a very low view of authority and we disrespect authority. And I tell people that's not true. 
when you understand the proper role of civil governance or any office of authority, this is true in marriage, this is true in the church, this is true in business. When you understand their proper role, um, then you can recognize when they're stepping outside of their role. Uh, and when they step outside of their role, they're abusing their power, they're abusing their authority. And that actually undermines their legitimate authority, right? An abusive husband is is undermining his his authority as a husband, same with a wife, a pastor who has stepped outside of his authority is abusing his authority and delegitimizes his, his own office. This is true of civil governance as well. So I would actually say we have a very high view of authority. And, um, so, you know, and that comes from being precise about what the proper role of civil governance is, what scripture actually says about it. And so you can go read that on, on our website, reformedlibertarians.com. And I think it's episode two where we talk about Romans 13. I think it was the first one I actually listened to. It was fantastic. And I appreciate that, how y'all distinguish the difference between civil government and state government. I think that's a big, that's a big thing that a lot of people miss and don't understand. With that being said, uh, thanks for coming. I had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, this is great. And I hope great. everybody else does as well. And so um, if you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to like the video, subscribe, click the bell. Any questions or comments uh, y'all might have, please leave them below. And do not hesitate to follow uh, Carrie and her work. Uh, we'll have links to everything that she does below, uh, to the Foreign Libertarians podcast, uh, to her podcast, everything. And you can... Mayor Liberty has a lot of the, her writings and such as well. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.